Take your Bible with me this morning and, and open to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Last week, I began a series of messages about the gospel, and we're going to be focusing for several weeks on the gospel. Uh, we're talking about a 2020 vision, uh, making sure that we have in focus what is the message of the New Testament church. And we may preach a lot of other things, and we may talk about a lot of other things because they're found in the Scripture, but the cornerstone, the foundational message that's to be given by the church is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, last week, we worked on a, a working definition of the gospel. It'll not be on the screens today, but we, we said the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins and rose again so that we may become the children of God through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, we could nuance that definition. We could build on that definition and expand and you know, add some understanding to some of those things. You know, what did Jesus do when he died for our sins? Why did he have to rise from the grave? We could answer some of those kinds of questions. But, but let me just tell you that if at the core of the message you are giving to people, that's not present, what I just read to you, that Jesus died for our sins, was buried and rose again so that all who come to him can put their faith in him and live forevermore. If that's not in your message, you're, you don't have a gospel message. Amen. The core of the message that we deliver is the gospel, and that's the foundation of all that we do. And so that brings us to Romans chapter 1 and to something that the Apostle Paul said. You heard the praise team singing about it a few minutes ago as they opened the service. But I want you to follow along with me beginning in chapter 1 verse 8. And let's talk about this for a few minutes today. The Apostle Paul writing says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests if, by some means, now at last I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often plan to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as in me as, as is in me, I am ready, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Let's pray together. Father, we're focused, seeking to refocus on what is the central message in the New Testament church. Lord, there's a lot of things that we need to teach and talk about in the process of equipping people to live for you. But there is no message that's been delivered to us more important than the message of the gospel. Sometimes, Lord, it's easy for us to drift. We, we stop talking about the gospel. We, we stop emphasizing it. We, we just assume that people know it. We just figure that they, they hear it somewhere along the way. And yet, Lord, this is a year for us to make sure that the gospel is clearly enunciated so that everyone will know that you have died for their sins, that you were buried and that you rose again, and that you live today to save anyone and everyone who comes to you. Help us now as we talk about this passage and we study in this passage. In your name I pray, amen. I don't know if you have ever felt intimidated or not. By intimidated, I mean afraid because of some person or because of some situation that you're in, but to be intimidated. I know that I certainly have felt intimidation at times. 
Uh, I can remember uh, Coy Bacon, who played for the Washington Redskins. Uh, he played for a couple of other professional teams. If, if you were here a number of years ago, Coy is now in heaven. He came and spoke to us. He was an African-American football player who had come to faith in Christ, and he would come and he would speak to us uh, on occasion, and, and I would stand next to him. Now, this, this man was huge. I don't mean fat. I mean he was big and muscular and strong, and he made even me look like a little man when I stood next to him. He towered over me, and just his structure was enormous, and it was a little bit intimidating. I definitely did not want to make Koi Bacon mad. I didn't want to turn him against me, that was for sure. Sometimes uh, intimidation comes from the realm of politics. You know, you, you are with somebody who's famous and somebody who has clout and somebody who has power and somebody who's on television and somebody who's seen and somebody who votes all those taxes in. Well, that sort of takes away the, that sort of takes away that, you know, being afraid of them. But you know what I'm talking about. You walk into the room and there's all of this, this opulence and there's all of this entourage of people and you know, here is this political personality and sometimes there can be a measure of intimidation. I guarantee you, your students, your kids know what, what, what intimidation is, especially in college. They, they sit in classrooms and they have professors sometimes that will intentionally, purposefully challenge the faith of those young people, daring them, daring them to stand up and stand with Christ. And if that student dare stand up, they will do everything they can to embarrass that student in front of the rest of that class. You say, surely that doesn't happen. Surely that does happen and creates intimidation in a classroom setting. I would tell you that sometimes... Uh, I faced intimidation, and, and I've yielded to it. And, you know, I just sort of kept quiet and didn't say anything. You know, I just tried to keep the peace because I just felt intimidated. Other times I felt intimidation, and, and I pressed through it to, to say what needed to be said or to do what needed to be done. Sometimes that intimidation becomes your, because you're standing in the presence of someone who is just evil, just evil. And, and you're intimidated. Do I say what I'm really thinking? Do, do I express what is really on my heart at this moment? Will I cause that evil then to be directed toward me? Intimidation is a reality with which we all have to live at times. And sometimes we succumb to it, and sometimes we overcome it, but it's a reality of life. And anybody who says, I'm never intimidated, is just intimidated by the reality that sometimes they're intimidated. And don't want to admit it. The fact is that sometimes we're intimidated. You know, I think that's a, a little bit of what the Apostle Paul is, is speaking to in this particular passage of Scripture, especially in verse 16, when he comes and he says, I want to come to you folks in Rome. Mind you, he's not been to Rome before. He'll go to Rome twice, two times as, as a prisoner, but he's not been to Rome before. He's wanted to go to Rome before, but he's saying to them, look, when I come to Rome, nothing's going to change. The message that I, I've, I've been delivering is the message that I'm going to continue to, live, to, to, to deliver because I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. So that raises the question in the back of our minds, why would there even be the thought that there might be some kind of shame to bearing the gospel and preaching the gospel in the city of Rome. So let me take you back to the first century for just a few moments. Let me introduce you just briefly in an overview fashion to the Roman Empire, and let me help you to understand something that maybe intimidated many Christians in that first century. The Roman Empire was the dominant political and military force of that first century when Christianity was rising. After the resurrection of Jesus and the church was birthed into existence, it was the Roman Empire under which the church was operating in which they were reaching out to people. Uh, this Roman Empire, and specifically the city of Rome, is said to have had a million people within a very small area. A million people. That in and of itself uh, can be daunting and intimidating. When Augustus did a census, they found that in the Roman Empire itself that there were some 55 million subjects 
That's how powerful Rome was. Rome stretched all the way from Britain in the northwest to Arabia in the southeast. It was the superpower of the day. And Rome was the political center of that superpower. When we think about America and being a superpower, we think of the center being Washington, D.C., that's where the politics takes place. That's where the senators and the Congress people are located. That's where the president is. That's where these big major decisions take place. Rome was that place in the Roman Empire. It was the place of power. And everybody in that massive expanse of the Roman Empire were constantly looking to Rome. That's where the senators, the Senate lived. That's where the Roman emperor lived in Rome. And so the people were always wanting to know what's going on in Rome. Well, what are they doing in Rome? What's, what's being voted on in Rome? What edicts are going to be given in Rome? If you don't think that's true, stop and think about a man named Joseph who had a young wife who was very pregnant, whose name was Mary. And Rome sent out a census that they had to go to Bethlehem in order to be counted amongst the people. And that Roman emperor was Caesar Augustus who issued that edict. He was the one who made them have to leave Nazareth and make their journey to Bethlehem. Or, or consider that Caesar Augustus, or excuse me, that it was the Roman emperors who set up Herod, who was the king of Judea. Uh, Judea is where Jerusalem is located. And Herod was the king of that territory. And how did he become king? He was appointed uh, by the emperor of Rome. And later, the sons of Herod would be deposed by the emperor of Rome because they were unwilling to follow and do what Rome asked. Or think about the crucifixion of Jesus. When it came time for the, Rome, for the uh, Jewish people to have Jesus crucified, they could not do it on their own. Who did they have to ask? They had to ask the Romans, the Roman governor Pilate, for permission to be able to execute Jesus on that cruel cross on Calvary. That's the kind of power that was represented by Rome as the political center of this Roman empire that spread out in such a vast territory. Inside the city of Rome, they had great wealth. Uh, there were different economic classes of people. There were slaves. There were free individuals. There were official Roman citizens. Think about that. Remember one time the Apostle Paul uh, is, is about uh, to have to deal with a matter where he's been being, being persecuted, and he appeals to what? His Roman, what? His Roman citizenship, right? He appeals to his Roman citizenship because if you were an official Roman citizen, you had special privileges. There were certain things that couldn't be done simply because you were a Roman citizen. But there were nobles of all kind in this city, both political and military. And so you have this gathering of people in Rome that not only have power, but they have great influence from those that are slaves to those that are, that are free individuals to those that were like Paul, who was a, an official Roman citizen. But when you stop and you think about Rome, as with many, if not most, major metropolitan areas, Rome was a place of great decadence in immorality. Think about the brutal practices of the arena and the torture that took place in those Roman arenas. And there was sexual immorality of every imaginable sort in every possible place. It was a cesspool of iniquity. Some of the, it was considered to be the most idolatrous, most immoral, and most incestuous place in the known world at the time. You can imagine that that itself can create a measure. That evil in itself can create a measure of intimidation. Rome was a city that was filled with philosophers and with poets and with educators. And consequently, it was a place for the erudite to be able to stand up and to flaunt their intellectual prowess. And so there's arrogance and there's pride in this city. There are those who look down on others and those who can, can argue down others. This city of Rome had a lot of outsiders as well. There were expats that came and lived in the city of Rome. Um, the different, different cultures and, and different languages, people that would come and they would gather in, in that city. 
and they were considered to be outsiders. Some of those were Jews and Christians. At one time, it's believed that there were as many as 50,000 Jews who lived in Rome. But then there were the Christians, people who had come to faith in Jesus who had, who had lived in Rome. By the way, Peter didn't bring the gospel to Rome. It was probably those who were there on the day of Pentecost when the church was birthed into existence, who trusted Christ as their Savior after Peter preached and went back to Rome where they lived and carried the gospel with them. And others came to faith in Christ and the church began to grow, which is why the Apostle Paul is writing here to the Romans. But the point is, is that in this city there were all kinds of different people from other places and other lands with different cultures and different ideas. And some of them were Jews and, and Christians. Uh, Rome was a place where there was Greek mythology, the Greek gods. Think about it. Uh, they had different gods and different demigods. Uh, there, the emperor himself, are you with me? The emperor himself demanded worship. And they were tolerant of all of these different religious practices. They were, what we say today, pluralistic. They were willing to tolerate all of these different practices and, and give them all the opportunity. I mean, there were, there were buildings and temples and shrines and places of worship of all different kinds everywhere, as long as, it was okay to be polytheistic, as long as... The emperor was worshipped. The emperor had to be worshipped. Well, that created a problem, doesn't it? If you're a Jew or a Christian, that creates a major problem because Christians and Jews are fiercely monotheistic. There's one God, and we will not worship other gods. But you're beginning to get the picture of what Rome was like. It was a place of political power. It was a place that was often cruel and mean. It was a place where pluralism prevailed. It was a place where everybody could practice their own religion, and evil was present everywhere. And those things in and of themselves created a measure of intimidation when you would walk into a great city like that. Think, think for a moment. It would be a little bit like walking into Times Square in New York. On New Year's Eve with a million people packed into Times Square and standing on that street corner and beginning to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that might have a tendency to be a tad bit intimidating, right? Or heading to Washington, D.C. and standing outside the White House or just outside of Congress on one of those street corners with all of the tourists coming and going and the politicians coming and going and all the people who work in those buildings coming and going or maybe outside the Pentagon and you're just standing there and you're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. I mean, that's the kind of intimidation that Rome offered if you were to come to Rome and you were to preach the gospel. And on top of that, you have to think about some of these uh, rulers, some of these emperors in Rome. Think of Nero. Think of Nero. When Paul was writing this Roman epistle, Nero was the emperor. Do you know what Nero did with Christians? He captured them, and then he used them as lights. He burned them to death, and he used them to light up his gardens at night. And when he was gone, Domitian wasn't any better and, and there was no reprisal. There was no court to make an appeal to. Whatever the emperor wanted to do is what the emperor got. That's the kind of world that Paul was talking about. Now think again and hear the words of, of Paul in verses 15 and 16. So as much as is in me, I am ready. The word means eager. I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You mean in the midst of all of that power, in the midst of all of that wickedness, immorality, in the midst of all of those multiplicity of worshipers? You're not afraid to go there? You're not intimidated to be there and to preach the gospel? I mean, think about it. The gospel had a carpenter as its founder. It had fishermen for its advocates and the poor as its supporters. And most of those who were the followers of Jesus Christ were considered to be the refuse of society. They weren't looked on with any sense of favor. 
They were viewed as unlearned and ignorant men. And, and consider how Paul had been treated in other places. Consider that he was imprisoned in Philippi. He was chased out of Thessalonica. He was smuggled out of Damascus and Berea. He was laughed at in Athens. He was considered a fool at Corinth. And he was declared a blasphemer and a lawbreaker in Jerusalem. I mean, your previous experiences, Paul, don't lend themselves to a great deal of confidence, right? And what you're facing and going to Rome where you have never been before but you know what it's like, don't make it easy to go there. And yet the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Let me ask you a question, just by way of beginning today. Are you ashamed of the gospel of Christ? When you're sitting in that classroom and that, and that uh, professor is putting you on the spot and calling you out, not necessarily by name, but by your faith, he's calling you out, are you ashamed of the gospel at that moment? When, when you're with your friends and your buddies that are doing things that you know aren't right for Christians to do, are you ashamed of the gospel at that moment? When you're standing in the presence of someone who is powerful and you know they desperately need to hear the gospel story, are you ashamed of the gospel at that moment? I think all of us have been there, haven't we? Sometimes we have yielded to that intimidation. I certainly have. And sometimes we have overcome that intimidation. But the Apostle Paul says, no matter what I've already experienced and no matter what is in front of me in, in the city of Rome, which is ultimately going to be his own martyrdom, whatever is in front of me in the city of Rome, I want you to understand I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while there is no command in verse 16, he's not saying I expect you to be not ashamed of the gospel like I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We learn from his example that we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel just as Paul says he wasn't ashamed of the gospel. You know, one of the preachers we like to talk about is an evangelist by the name of Dwight L. Moody. Uh, Dwight L. Moody was the Billy Sunday, or excuse me, the Billy Graham of the, of the uh, 19th century, 1800s. Uh, he was overweight. Some would even say he was obese. He had this huge beard. Uh, which is nothing wrong with that, but he had a huge beard, you know, full beard. If I could grow one, I'd have one. He had a booming voice. I mean, he could fill up an arena with his voice alone. And yet, uh, D.L. Moody wasn't well-educated. Don't forget, he was a shoe salesman who met the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus changed his life. He was never ordained by a church to the gospel ministry, but he was so eager to preach the gospel of Jesus, and he was called, obviously, of God to be an evangelist. And He would stand before people, and hundreds of people would respond to the gospel whenever he would preach the gospel. Some people considered him to be uncouth. He was even called obese by some. In 1870, he went, to, he went to England. I don't know if you've ever been to Europe or not. I'm English by heritage, and, you know, they're sort of a stiff upper lip, and, you know, they sort of say what they think. And um, I, but trust me, my mother was that way. <laughs> um, he went to England in 1870, and while he was there speaking, it was said about him that he murdered the Queen's English, just absolutely murdered the Queen's English. He opened one of his messages by saying, don't never think that God don't love you, for he do. <laughs> and I'm loving D.L. Moody better every minute that I talk about him, because I make a lot of grammatical errors. Amen? No, no, don't say amen to that. After some messages, there was a sophisticated, dignified English woman that came to Mr. Moody and said, Mr. Moody, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Mr. Moody hung his head and he said, Ma'am, you're right. I am ashamed of myself. But I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and he was not intimidated by a bunch of people who had all of the education that he didn't have. He was willing to stand before them and proclaim the one message that everyone must hear in order to be saved. And Paul was like D.L. Moody. Paul says, I'm going to a place of supposed sophistication, but it's a place where decadence is everywhere, where there's pluralism everywhere. There's polytheism everywhere. There's all kinds of immorality everywhere. There's evil that will oppose me when I get there. Ultimately, he will end up a martyr in Rome. He knows all of those things. And yet he says, I'm eager to get there and preach to you the gospel because I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Now, there's four things that I want to give you as you think about this first chapter with me. And we consider the fact that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. First, I want you to write down just these words, a gospel commission. Why would Paul go to Rome like this? Because he had a gospel commission. You look back in verse 1. We didn't read verse 1, but look back in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. If you look down in verse 5, he says, through him... We have received grace and apostleship. Or down in verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Or if you look at verse 15 again, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel. Why would the Apostle Paul be willing to leave the safety supposed a safety of wherever he might have been at any given moment and venture out into a world that was going to oppose him over and over and over again. And now he wants to go to what will be one of the most dangerous places on the earth for him to go. The answer is he had a gospel commission. He had been called of God to go. Now I want you to understand that the Apostle Paul had a special kind of commission. We're not apostles. He was an apostle of Christ, as were, were Matthew and the others, you know, Peter, James, and John, the others. He was an apostle of Christ. And so the Lord's not going to set us apart in that sense of being an apostle, having seen Jesus with our own eyes. But the fact of the matter is that every one of us are commissioned by this same gospel to take it to the ends of the earth. And the Apostle Paul understood that commission. And I wonder sometimes, do we understand that commission? Sometimes we overcome the intimidation simply in knowing that this is what God has told us to do, and we go do it, whether it's easy or it's not easy. If we wait to take the gospel to the places where it's easy, it's rarely ever going to go anywhere outside of the comforts of your own home in your own church building. The gospel calls us and commissions us to take it, this message that everybody needs to hear, to take it to places where we put ourselves in a position where people can oppose us and object to us and, and can persecute us, to put, us, put ourselves in those kinds of positions. Why? For the sake of the gospel. Why did you need to go to Rome, Paul, to preach the gospel? Isn't that a dangerous place? Aren't there some Christians already there? Sure, there's Christians already there, but Paul recognizes that he has a special commission to bring the gospel. And even though it's dangerous to go there, I must go to Rome. And I must take the gospel of Jesus. As a matter of fact, when you look at verses 14 down to about verse 23, that's really the message that Paul is given and what he's going to do in that particular text of Scripture. We're going to look at it here in a moment. He's giving these clauses, these subordinate clauses. He tells you a detail, and then he supports it by the next clause. And then he supports that by the next clause. And then he supports that by the next clause, because this is what he was commissioned to do. Just look at it with me for a moment. Verse 14, it's on the screens. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Why in Rome? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why am I not ashamed of it? For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. 
Why to everyone who believes? For it, in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Why is God's righteousness needed to live? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Well, who has shown or made plain this truth? Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Where is this truth shown or made plain to them? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. What's seen or made plain to them? being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power in Godhead, so that we are without excuse. His eternal power in God, Godhead are seen and made plain. But why then the wrath? Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And what is the result? They darkened their hearts. What's the result? They rejected God. What's the result? Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Do you see what he's saying? Why do you have to go to, to Rome, Paul? Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God to salvation. And why does everybody need to hear this message? Because everybody has to believe this message in order to be saved. I mean, when you read through these verses, what you discover is that the Apostle Paul was in essence telling us that we can be made right with God through the Lord Jesus. That the walls that had separated Jews from Gentiles, the walls that had separated man from God, have all been taken down. That mankind's greatest problem is his own sin. And if he lets it go on, he makes himself the Lord of his own life. But if he comes to Jesus Christ, he doesn't follow that path, and he becomes a child of the living God. And that was Paul's commission. Paul was called to do this. You and I are called to take the gospel. You say, but the people I work with, they're going to laugh at me. You were called. You were commissioned to take this message. The walls are down. You can come to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. At the foot of the cross, there's, e there's equal for all of us. We don't stand better than anybody else. We're all sinners saved by the grace of God. And we come with that message again and again because we've been commissioned with that message. We're to go into all the world and preach the, the gospel to every creature. Do you hear what he says? into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And the Apostle Paul was commissioned. There's a gospel commission here, just as there's a gospel commission for us. But secondly, there's a gospel confidence here. I want to take you back to verse 16. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. When you see that little phrase, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, that's, that's a figure of speech. It's called a litetes. It's where you take a double negative, and the purpose of using the double negative is to emphasize the positive. I am not, that's the negative. Ashamed, that's the negative. Double negative. What was he saying? I am unashamed. You, you could even, some even translated the word pride. I am proud to be able to come to you and, and to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you put those together, he actually means the total opposite of being ashamed of the gospel. I'm absolutely unashamed of the gospel. And why is he unashamed? Because it is the what? The power of God to salvation. Now understand this word power, dunamis. We get our word dynamite from it, but that's not a very good picture of what salvation is. Because when I think of dynamite, I think about blowing something up, destroying it. I suppose you can use that word in the sense that if you're you're caught in some kind, of, uh, some kind of sin from which you can't get free. The power, the dynamite of the gospel can break that bondage. But really, the, the, the word dunamis is used as well for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power that raised up Christ is the power that's found in the gospel when the gospel is preached. And Paul was confident he was confident in the gospel. He wasn't ashamed of it because he knew the power rested in it. I'm not so sure we believe that anymore. 
I think sometimes we think we've got to embellish the gospel. I'm not suggesting you don't need to do things to get people's hearing or, or to make sure that people are paying attention or to love people or build relationships with people. That's what I'm talking about. But I think sometimes people think the gospel's not enough. That we've got to add to the gospel. We've got we to tweak the gospel a little bit. We've got we to turn it a little bit. I mean, it's, it's offensive to some people, so we don't want to give them the gospel. Do you understand when you do that, you're tampering with the power of God? What God has commissioned us to do, as he commissioned the apostle Paul to do, is to take the message of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. We don't have to be ashamed of it. Yes, some people are going to reject it, and some people are going to laugh at you, and some people are going to spit on you, and some people may persecute you. But you know what? There's going to be those who receive the gospel and who are born into the family of God because the power of God is in the gospel. Paul was confident in the revelation the gospel embodied. I mean, the very power of God, the word of God was in the gospel. He was confident in the deliverance the gospel effected. He was confident that if people believed the gospel, that they'd be set free and delivered from their guilt and their pollution to sin and their slavery to sin and the penalty of sin and their alienation from God and delivered from the wrath of God if they just believed the gospel. He was confident in the motives that the gospel inspired, that the gospel would change people and cause them to love God and to love their fellow man. Think, think with me for a moment. Some of the greatest works that have ever been done have been done in the name of Jesus Christ. Hospitals and orphanages and care for those that are hurting and broken and dying have been done in the name of Jesus Christ for the cause of the gospel. Paul was confident. He was absolutely confident in the gospel. Are you confident in the gospel? Now look, it's not about your ability to argue somebody into faith. It's about giving them the gospel and letting the power of the gospel do its work. Amen. Do you do what I do, at least what I was trained to do and I try to do? If I'm talking to somebody and I'm trying to share the gospel with them and they just refuse, then I'll inevitably say, well, could I pray with you before I leave? And when I bow my head and I begin to pray, if they allow me to do that, I've been told no before. If they allow me to bow my head and, and to pray, you know what I pray in my prayer? I pray the gospel to them. And if they tell me they won't listen to me and they won't let me pray, then I ask them, I say, look, I've got something here in my pocket that's some literature. Could I just leave this here on the side of your bed or at your house or on your table? And, and sometimes you just take a look at it because I'd love for you to see what's in it and guess what's in it? The gospel. And if they say, no, I won't talk to you, and you can't pray for me, and I'm not taking anything out of your hand, I go home, and I get out a piece of paper, and I write it. I say, thank you for letting me come to your house. Can I just tell you that God loves you, that Jesus died for your sins, that Jesus was buried, and that Jesus rose again, and that if you'll put your faith in Christ and in Christ alone, you can become a child of the living God. If you do that, will you please let me know? You say, preacher, you're just too unsophisticated. You need to help people have their best life now. Well, I want you to have your best life now, but I'm worried about your best life then. And only the gospel changes people's hearts and lives. There was a commission. There was a gospel commission. There was a gospel confidence. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. Listen, we just got to get the gospel out. Just everywhere we go, we just got to keep sowing the gospel. We got to keep sharing the gospel. You got to give the gospel to your children. You got to give it to your neighbors. You got to give it to your friends. You got to give it to your coworkers. You got to give it to your enemies. You got to give the gospel. The power of God is in the gospel, not our sophistication. Well, we're going to have a program for all that. Nothing wrong with programs, but if you leave the gospel out, you've left the power out. Thirdly, there's a gospel choice here. And this is where it gets down to you. There's a gospel choice here. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone. It's universal. It's expansive for everyone who, what? Goes to church, gets baptized, is a good person, who what? 
who believes the gospel. Whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, no matter what your background is, whether you're civilized or you're barbarian, which is what Greek people called those who weren't Greek. They called them barbarians. They didn't speak Greek. They didn't have Greek culture. Doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. If you believe, you're saved. If you believe the gospel, your life is changed by the, by the power of the gospel. But you've got to believe it. I can't believe it for you. Your children can't believe it for you. The parents, when we're leaving, leading our children to Christ, you can't believe the gospel for your child. Your child has to believe the gospel for himself or herself. You can't believe the gospel for your friend. You've got you to believe the gospel for yourself. And every person needs to have the opportunity to open his or her heart and believe the gospel. It's the power of God. Do you believe that? Amen? It's, wow, that's not real confident. Do you believe that the gospel is the power of God? The power of God to save people is in the gospel? Thank you. We're getting focused, 2020 focus. The power is in the gospel. Stop talking about every other subject. Oh, my pastor is a wonderful man. Please say that occasionally. <laughs> if, you, if you mean it, if you don't mean it, don't lie. Then you can say, my pastor's wife is a wonderful woman. My church is a great church, and we have wonderful programs, and we do good things. All of that's wonderful. But if it's absent of you telling them the gospel, you're leaving out the power to change their lives. They need to hear the power that changed their lives, and then they have to believe it. The just, it says, verse 17, shall live by faith. They each have to put their faith in the Lord Jesus. Think about it this way for a moment. Suppose that you're not feeling very well today, and so you head out to the doctor after service, and you get a checkup. They do some tests over the next few days. They call you back, and you get back to the office, and the doctor looks at you. He says, I'm sorry. I got some bad news for you. You've contracted a rare disease, and unfortunately, it's a fatal disease, and there's only one cure. We've just recently come up with this medication. It's a new medication. It's been developed, and you've got to take it home with you, and you've got to take it now. So you reach out and you take that bottle of medicine from your doctor and you head off in your car down to your house and you get to your house and you walk in to your medicine cabinet and you put it up in the medicine cabinet. What do you think will happen to you? <laughs> Can I remind you what the, what the details were? You're sick, you're dying, and you know it. And the medicine that will cure you, well, you've got to take it for it to cure you. And you've got the medicine in your cabinet. Those are the details. So what happens to you if you don't take the medicine? You die. You die. The gospel is the medicine for man's sin-sick soul. A lot of people know the gospel, but they've never taken the gospel for themselves. They've put it up on a shelf. They've said, we'll consider it later on. We'll think about it on another occasion. When what they should have done was taken that medication, that gospel message immediately, and believed the gospel. I got good news for those that are watching live and those that are watching in this service. I got good news for you. You can walk out of this room forgiven of your sins, a child of the living God, a possessor of eternal life, an heir of Jesus Christ. You can walk out of here with your guilt gone, forgiven forever for your sins, never to be remembered against you. You can walk out of here right with God, in fellowship with God, with, with, the, with the presence of God in your life. You can walk out of here with joy and peace. You can walk out of here experiencing his love, not just knowing about it, but it isn't going to come any other way than through the gospel, and it isn't going to come unless you believe the gospel. You've got to believe the gospel. You've got to trust the Lord Jesus as your own personal Savior. You have to take it down, and you have to receive it for yourself. I like what Max Lucado said. If there are a thousand steps between us and God, he will take all but one. He will leave the final one for us. The choice is ours. And then finally, there's a, there's a gospel conversion. A gospel conversion. 
It's in verse 17. He says, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does he mean? In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Let me read it to you from another translation. This is what it says. Different translation. The good news, that is the gospel, tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. The gospel tells us how God makes us right in his sight. That's gospel conversion. Do you know this commission that God's given to us with which we have a conviction? We have a conviction that the gospel is the power of God. So that if we choose to believe that message, that there'll be a conversion that takes place in our lives that changes who we are, that changes and transforms us instantaneously and then continuously. Somebody has said, nature forms us, sin deforms us, education informs us, prison reforms us, but only Jesus transforms us. Only Jesus. And that's a gospel conversion. Has your life changed? Can you go back to the time in your life when somebody gave you the gospel? They didn't give you some ritual. They didn't give you some ceremony. They didn't give you something that, you know, that was the holy water. When you went back and you heard the gospel of Jesus and you believed the gospel, Jesus will save me if I'll just believe him. And at that moment, you were transformed and you have seen the difference from that moment forward in your life. I've seen the difference. I fear, please, I'm not the judge. I fear there's a lot of people sitting in our churches, even Bible-believing churches, thinking they're going to heaven, but they're really going to hell. Because they had the gospel, but they, they put it in the shelf. Rather than believe it and let the power of the gospel convert them and transform them, and the result is they're just still in their sins, thinking they're going to heaven. What a, what a terrible place to be. I want you to watch a testimony, and then we'll bring this service to a close. It's by one of our men, uh, Matt Johnson. Matt's a pharmacist. He works in Charleston. Don't put your Bible up. I'm not through yet. <laughs> I like to do that just after I hear all the zippers <laughs> closing up the Bibles. Uh, I, I do that for fun. Some of it's for fun. Um, Matt Johnson, one of our young men who's a pharmacist, travels from Huntington to Charleston every day. I want you to listen to his testimony. Well, I got saved a little over eight years ago. I was a sophomore in college. But before that, I grew up and went to a uh, Catholic middle school and a Catholic high school. And so for me, the issue wasn't that I didn't believe in God, I didn't believe in, in Jesus or the crucifixion, the resurrection, or any of the Bible stories. But for me, my faith felt, felt more like a religion as opposed to a relation, relationship. Like there, there were a lot of rules that I had to follow. There was a lot of monotony in, in the church and in, in the worship experience. I felt like that there were a lot of good works that I had to do. So for me, I just didn't see a, a huge need for having God or Jesus in, in my life. I just didn't feel like I was getting anything out of having, having that as a big part of my life, Christianity, that, that is. So then fast forward to college in my sophomore year, one of my friends on the track and field and cross country team invited me um, to ch the church that she was going to with some of our other teammates on the team. Now, I had a major crush on this girl and I don't think looking back that it was a, a coincidence that God brought us um, together, brought her into my life. And so I absolutely wasn't gonna say no to her. So I said, sure, I'll come and check out um, the church that you're going to. It felt completely different from any other church experience I had encountered. There was a lot of fellowship. Everybody was very friendly towards each other. The worship experience, the music was awesome. The pastor was very funny and, and engaging. And we got to open this book that we know as the Bible. And I was so excited about that because I knew so little about the Bible other than the stories that I had learned um, in middle school and in high school. And so looking back on that experience, I 
wanted to keep coming back because it was so different from anything I, any church experience I'd ever felt before and it was so interesting. And so over the next couple of months as I kept going to this church and I kept spending time um, with my friend on the team, I got to learn what the Bible truly had to say about the gospel. And over time it finally clicked for me that I absolutely needed God and Jesus in my life because if I didn't have him in my life, if I didn't put my faith and trust in him, then I as a sinner was completely dead to rights and was going to spend all of eternity in a place called hell. And so knowing that, finally I made the decision on January 22nd, 2012, um, in my bedroom that night before I went to bed, I got on my knees and made Jesus Christ my Lord and Savior. And so looking back on it, when I think about hearing the gospel message for the first time, to say that hearing it and putting my faith and trust in what it has to say for us in regards to um, where we're going to spend all of eternity, to say that that's made a major change in my life is a huge, huge understatement. It's the greatest decision that I've ever made, and I think just about all of us who, who call ourselves believers and say that we're saved um, would agree that it's the most important decision that they've made and that anyone could ever make. Can you point to a place and a time when the gospel changed you, a gospel conversion? If not, I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment to have that moment, have that time that you can go back and say, at this time, at this moment, I put my faith in Jesus. I put my faith in the gospel, and the power of the gospel changed my life. But can I ask everyone who already knows Jesus, can we tell other people the gospel? Quit convoluting it with everything else. Quit mix, mixing it in with everything else. Build friendships, build relationships, build bridges. But at some point, we have to tell the gospel. We have to tell them that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, God in flesh, died for our sins, was buried. That's proof that he died for our sins, rose again the third day and was seen. We saw it in 1 Corinthians 15, four or five times, and was seen, and was seen, and was seen, and was seen. He is alive. And you come to him by faith in, alone in Christ alone, asking Jesus, save me, save me. You receive him. We've got to get that message to our children We've got to get it to our friends and our family members. We've got to get it to those we work with, we care about. We've got to get it to our neighbors. Not how good our church is. We've got to get the gospel. And maybe it's a young girl who invites a boy to church so that the preacher can give the gospel. We've got to get people under the sound of the gospel.